it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. A really intense week on so many different levels, including internationally. You cannot, uh, just a week after the big NATO conference and the calling out of NATO of China, which I thought was great, uh, realizing we're short of 155 artillery. That's not good. Uh, cluster bombs in theater, in action. And then the hitting of that bridge in Ukraine. Uh, you hit that bridge in Ukraine, and the response has been, we're going to stop off grain uh, shipments uh, out of Ukraine, which means a bunch of African nations are going to starve and a economy is going to suffer. Why don't we reopen that up? Why don't we just open up these waterways and and challenge Russia once and for all? Because... This can't stand. This hour, we're going to be joined by Alexi Lalas from Australia, which covering the Women's World Cup. Carly Shimkus at the bottom of the hour, too. Bring us all the latest breaking news, including these new revelations about Ukraine as it relates to uh, the Biden family. But first things first, let's go to Admiral James Javidis, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Uh, Admiral, uh, I understand right now that this is a this is the Vladimir Putin is not backing down when it comes to these grain sales. What leverage could we get? Uh, the biggest thing we should do, and I would argue we ought to be doing the detailed planning for this right now, is to offer to escort civilian ships that carry grain. And it's not just grain. It's grain, sunflower oil, potash, which is a form of fertilizer, corn. Um, Ukraine provides 10 to 15 percent of the world's food supply. Vladimir Putin cannot be allowed to simply say, nope. You can't export that anymore. So what we should do is get about half a dozen NATO warships, move them into the Black Sea, and set up an escort service. Believe me, Putin is not going to attack a NATO warship, and therefore those grain shipments could move smoothly. I think that's the quickest way to unlock this dilemma. So listen, so you've studied what's happened over the – forget, you probably would have done this to begin with. But we've seen what's yeah. happened along the way. We don't want to provoke. We don't want to go too far. We don't want to make this between the U.S. and Russia. Every time we be caught with caution, we end up having to go back on it and nothing happens. We're watching Russia fire general after general. The ones that aren't killed are being uh, dismissed, it seems. Obviously, there's been a challenge to his power. We all witnessed that. They're not doing well militarily. So now you're going to starve people out? That's not going to stand. You have a humanitarian angle to this as well. So when people tell you, well, they're mining the harbor, what do you tell them, Admiral? Uh, We've got minesweepers at NATO. We can go in and clear out mines. We can open corridors. And, Brian, we don't have to imagine what this would look like. Uh, Back in the late 1980s, uh, young Lieutenant Jim Stavridis was part of something called Operation Earnest Will. In that scenario, the Iranians were putting mines in the water. They were harassing merchant ships, particularly those carrying, in this case, oil instead of grain. And, oh, by the way, out of the Arabian Gulf in those days, 30 percent of the world's oil flowed. 
And we said, this will not stand. What did we do? We sent minesweepers. We escorted those tankers to and from Kuwait. And we broke the back of the Iranian Navy. Ultimately, we sank about a third of the Iranian Navy. Let's hope it doesn't get to that. We're not looking for a war with Russia. But we simply can't allow Vladimir Putin to impose his will, cause hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of deaths around the world and undermine the global food network. It's not going to stand. Here's the CIA director uh, from the Aspen Security Forum, Cut 37. Well, it's deeply troubling. I mean, first for Ukrainians, where, you know, what Putin is trying to do is wreck the Ukrainian economy. Um, and wreak real havoc on innocent Ukrainian civilians. Uh, It obviously also uh, does deep damage to some of the most most vulnerable societies on Earth, in Africa and the Middle East, that depend on those grain shipments. What Putin is engaged in clearly just over the last several days is a very systematic effort. It's not just about pulling out of the grain deal. It's also about three nights in a row of intensive you know, attacks in Odessa and Mikolaev and other port cities against grain storage facilities. And part of that was they hit the bridge, his his coveted bridge uh, leading to Crimea. And uh, the, the trains are allowed to flow, but it's going to take another month to get it back online. And this is the punishment for doing that, Admiral. So, yeah, and you're not somebody that sits there and sit, you're not a pundit just sitting back and going, yeah, this is what I would do. You're saying right now, if they called you up with all your experience, you would say, <laughs> we got to do this. Yeah, I'm in my 60s, and I don't think the Navy is going to reach out for Admiral Stavridis. But believe me, there are many, many wonderful young sailors and commanders of destroyers and uh, commanders of big amphibious ships and minesweepers that would love this mission. I did this mission in my late 20s. Uh, It is a powerful, important mission to open the seaways, and it benefits the United States. Um, If you think that allowing Putin to shut down grain will not affect food prices here in the United States, you're wrong. If you think that allowing him to starve populations in Africa and the Middle East will not ultimately impact NATO and our allies and us in this country, you're wrong. Um, This is a mission that makes sense for the United States to lead in, but it can be done under the aegis of NATO. And final thought, Brian, um, you just heard the voice of Ambassador Bill Burns, ultimate professional, former ambassador to Moscow, knows Putin well. Um, He will be one who will help from his current post at the CIA with coming up with some shall we say, innovative solutions to this problem as well. So Russia's top propagandist, Margarita Simonoyan, quote, all our hope is in the famine. The famine will start now and they will lift the sanctions, I assume, on Russia. Uh, Your thoughts? Uh, There's another name for all this. It's two words, Brian. It's war crimes. You can't deliberately attack civilian populations. You can't withdraw critical food stocks and energy and the ability to maintain life in a country. Uh, That's what Putin is attempting to do with this grain shipment. So um, I find her comments laughable. Um, The United States and the West will not ease sanctions. I think quite the contrary. We're going to double down on ensuring that this grain has an opportunity to flow. And I do not believe Vladimir Putin has the 
either the credibility or the capability in the Black Sea Fleet to stop it. William Burns went on to, he was asked about Vladimir Putin, how he's viewed from the inside. You just outlined his credentials. He would know, as good as anyone would know, uh, cut 36. What it resurrected was some deeper questions about Putin's judgment, about his relative detachment from events, and from about his indecisive. In many ways, it exposed some of the significant weaknesses in the system that Putin has built that have been exposed by Putin's misjudgment since he launched this invasion. So he was saying that they're really questioning him. Number one, he left Moscow in a, uh, for St. Petersburg when uh, Prigozhin was zeroing in on Moscow. Prigozhin did go to Belarus. He is joined by Wagner. He did make a statement saying Wagner won't do Ukraine war. That's a mess. We have other missions. So the guy lives and thrives still. He fired uh, key generals, and you guys know this much better than I ever will, but this guy Popov was extremely popular with the troops. He left and then cut a video condemning the operation and the people in charge. This thing in some ways seems to be coming apart. Uh, Indeed. Um, My feeling about Vladimir Putin is uh, he is diminished but not defeated. If he were a stock, he would have lost about 30, 35 percent of his value at this point, particularly internationally. Think about how all this is received by President Xi in Beijing, who is told by his best friend, Vladimir Putin, hey, don't worry about this. I'll be in Kiev in four days. Uh, Newsflash, we're on day 513 of this war, and it's the Ukrainians who are on the front foot. So uh, Putin has lost credibility. He feels things shaking beneath him. In terms of Prigozhin, I think if you look at further into Bill Burns' comments, he says, Ambassador Burns says, sooner or later, Prigozhin will get his just reward from Putin. And he says Putin is the the master of long-term vengeance. I would go with that. Um, Ultimately, Brian, your point is the correct one. The the foundations of this rotten tower of Russia are shaking underneath Vladimir Putin. Let's hope it Let's hope it continues to be so. And let's escort those ships out. Lastly, I want to get to China. Uh, You know, since the balloon... We have had our, our destroyer cut off. We have had at least one. Uh, our, they have also harassed our, our planes in, this, uh, in international waters, over international waters. And then instead we take a – and, of course, the balloon. Uh, then we take a break, and then we send our secretary of state, our secretary of treasurer, and whatever John Kerry claims to be. What message is that to China? Here is Daniel Crittenbrick in Capitol Hill. Uh, uh, Capitol Hill. He basically wondered. Uh, by the way, I just got a uh, just real quick. I just got to get your take on this. Uh, Daniel Crittenberg asked, "Did Secretary of State Blinken hold uh, President Xi accountable, China accountable for the for the spy ship?" Essentially, they said no. Is that the correct tactic? Um, I don't think so. I think we're sending China some mixed messages here. Uh, two things we need to do. We do need to communicate with China. I'm worried um, about the fact that we're sending a lot of cabinet officials, but our secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, has no contact with his opposite number. That's quite concerning. And number two, oh, by the way, the Chinese foreign minister has vanished. He's been gone for 
three weeks. There's no explanation as to his disappearance. Um, it's indicative of a lack of communication. So point one, right. we need to communicate better. Point two, we've got to show strength, and we cannot back down in the face of these uh, military maneuvers by China, notably in the South China Sea. I wish you were Secretary of Defense. I'd feel a lot better. Admiral James <laughs> Chavitas, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Over to Australia next. Alexi Lala standing by Women's World Cup. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Getting to the top is tough, but staying there is even harder. Uh, we've had to challenge each other every single day in training. We hold each other ca- accountable. We don't shy away from tackles or um, or getting into each other. Uh, so I think that's how we really keep the standard high. Uh, there you go. That was Alex Morgan talking about being Vietnam and not taking it for granted, but they will crush them. Alexi Lawless is doing the broadcasting, doing the desk. He's out there in winter in Australia. Uh, he'll, he'll be... Uh, uh, bringing us all the play-by-play as the women get set to get started today. Uh, Lexi, welcome back. Thanks, buddy. How are we doing down there? I'm doing... up there, I guess, <laughs> it's, it's a case may be. Yeah, we're, we're up. You're down, but you're up because the tournament's got underway. How have the crowds been in day one? Well, look, uh, the host nations played on day one, and Australia had a record crowd, 80,000, and wow. New Zealand had a record crowd, 40,000. So, so far, so good. We're going to get into the dog days here, and we'll see how the uh, the crowds are. But it seems like everybody's pretty jacked up. Like I said, I'm here in Sydney in Australia. This is being joint hosted by Australia and New Zealand. And as you mentioned later on today uh, in the U.S., the U.S. women will kick off their campaign to win three World Cups in a row, never been done, unprecedented, men's or women. So this is a, do you think, would you characterize this as a transition year for the U.S. team? Yeah, there's a bunch of players that have never won a World Cup and were not part of this team last go around. But, you know, there's a there's a real identity that kind of gets passed down generation to generation and the success and the expectation, let's be honest, is something that I think all players, regardless if they're brand new or if they're veterans like Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe, as you mentioned, and we will create new stars here. But ultimately, their platform, their voice is relative to the success that they have. We love in America what we love. We love winners. And we love the best in the world. And in these uh, and these women and this team for now a long time, that's exactly what they've given us on a consistent basis. So you, the, the U.S. schedule, they open up with Vietnam. What else can we can expect? When do we see them? Then in group play, they, uh, they face the Netherlands, uh, who they beat in the World Cup final last time around. And then Portugal, another debutante. So this is the biggest women's World Cup that we've had, 32 teams. Uh, so it's, it's been expanded, which means that there are eight debutantes. And this is a great opportunity for these players for these teams to really you know show their wares at the highest level and also to send a message back home to some of these countries that 
don't spend the, the, the time and the resources, don't have the respect for women's sports in general, and certainly when it comes to women's soccer that we do in the U.S. and that we have kind of put into it now for many, many decades. So we'll see at 9 o'clock Eastern tonight. Uh, the U.S. will play the Netherlands Wednesday at 9 o'clock on the 25th, and then August 1st against Portugal uh, right after that at 3 a.m. in the morning. So it's going to be tough for Americans to watch. But, Alexi, this other, the other undercurrent is club soccer. I mean, now England has rolled out with their premier team. They all have women's teams, the NWSL, and now the USL has a top-level women's team. Do you, are a lot of club coaches looking at some of this international talent and trying to bring them over? Yeah, I mean, it's really been interesting, Brian, in terms of the way that the women's game has progressed and evolved. And like I mentioned, you know, for, for many decades now, we have put the time and resources in and even legislated for women's sports, and we've got the advantage and that gap, and that's why we've been good for so long. But the rest of the world obviously has an existing infrastructure, and soccer is king around most of the rest of the world and other countries and cultures. So with very limited resources, they can make up a, a dramatic amount of, uh, uh, of that gap. And so now you're seeing over in England, you're seeing over in Spain, you're seeing over in Italy and places, um, you know, these, these teams, that the infrastructure and the, and the talent is coming from the association with some very big teams, whether it's a Barcelona or a Real Madrid or an Arsenal, all these different things are happening. And it, and it means that their national teams are better. England, for example, are the European champions, and they would love nothing more than to win their first World Cup and to do it at the expense of the U.S., this, you know, this champion and this juggernaut, that would, uh, I think, warm the cockles of their English hearts. Messi is going to be uh, playing tonight. I think he makes his debut for Inter-Miami. How much would you yep. like to be 25 years old and have a chance to cover the best player in the league? <laughs> I don't know if you cover him. You just kind of wander around and, and try to limit the damage. But it's, you know, it's going to be fun to see what he looks like in the context of playing, not just in Major League Soccer, which is a league that is, you know, has a salary cap and there is manufactured parity, but also playing for Inter-Miami, which is not a very good team at all. They're sitting in the bottom right now. So he's got his work cut out for him. And it'll be interesting to see, like I said, in that context, because all we've ever seen Messi do is play for the best teams in the world with the best players around him. And he can't do it all himself. You know, soccer, that's just not how it's done. So it'll be interesting to see, ultimately what this Inter-Miami team looks like from a wins and losses perspective and what Messi looks like in a new shirt, in a new league, in a new country. How ready are you, uh, Lexi? And, and what is it going to be work, uh, working with Carly Lloyd? Is she ready for you? She's ready. She's awesome, by the way. Her transition to, uh, to television has been seamless. She is a champion on screen and off, and it's a pleasure to work with another uh, – Rutgers grad, so uh, we got that going for us, and we got all sorts of people, by the way, and the and the uh, you know Fox. We like to do it big, and we basically we own the Sydney Harbor with all of our sets that we have <laughs> down there. So we're going to do it big. We're going to bring you all the stories on and off the field. Obviously, a lot of it's going to be U.S. centric as they try to get uh, right. in this moment in history for uh, for the team. But uh, look, if it's men's, women's, or co-ed naked, Brian, I, I don't care. I'm there. I'm talking about soccer. You know, right? And we're not going to focus on the co-ed naked. We didn't. We didn't buy the rights to that Although, yet. That would we're be great. That would be great. Uh, Lexi's got to deal with winter and a lot of a lot of soccer. Thanks so much. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, it's unfortunate. It's definitely a hinge point, a turning point. Um, you know, the, the, the future is different than it's ever been. 
um, is talking about streaming and, and, and uh, residuals, and then AI is a completely new frontier that I think everyone's trying to measure about what it really is. So uh, let's see. Everyone's on pause. It's gonna it's gonna hurt a lot of people, but hopefully it'll be a short term pain for long term improvement. And we're talking about the actor strike, the writer strike. Broadway could be striking. Why? Because there's a recalculation. Think about how you watch movies now. Do you go to the theater? Answer that question. Most likely you're saying rarely. And then you say to yourself, do I watch cable television? Well, maybe you do. Uh, if you're younger, probably you're going Netflix, you're going Hulu, you're going Smart TV, Apple TV. So how do these men and women get paid for this? And when these productions are done, a lot of times these big names say, I'll take less, but just give me points. This thing's going to make money, you know, doing Batman, doing a Marvel movie. Just give me some points. Well, now, when you take a movie and you get points, if it goes right to Netflix, you don't get anything. So with me right now is somebody who's negotiated many different uh, strikes, the end of strikes. Uh, she's done a lot of this in her career, Carly Shimkus. Carly, how do you end a strike like this, a labor, uh, labor when you have labor friction? Um, warm hugs. That's it. Mm-hmm. Just cross cross the picket line. Extend your you arms. You don't delve into and numbers just, and get into benefits. Just make them feel days. loved and that's welcomed. It. Yes. Coley Shimkus here. Coley, that was Matthew McConaughey. Yes, it was. Speaking with Brett Baer mm-hmm. about a strike. But what he says is the lighting people, the key grips, yep. those it's, set designers. It's the people who aren't at the top of the ticket, you know, like the A-listers uh, that are really demanding more. And I think the most interesting part of this story is the AI element to it because there is this uh, suggestion that background actors could be eliminated and really what they would do is take a background actor and uh, they would scan their image and then that person would never get a job again. They would work one day, get like usually when you do background work, you get like $200 for the day and uh, then they would digitally have that person's image and be able to use them in the background of a beach scene, in the background of a restaurant scene, so that person would never get hired. Uh, I used to do audition for background acting work and commercial work. Yeah. And I can understand why these studios would want to do that because when you go to these auditions, you go into a room, it's like, you know, you go into an office space and it's a if it's like a typecasting thing, you walk in and I would walk. There would be like 150 to 250 other tall blonde women that look exactly like me. And then there's a casting director and he spends his whole entire day talking to each one of us and going, OK, deliver the line, deliver the line. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. Well, that's for, under those are know. under fives. Yeah. The background, you're just talking about um, background people. Yeah. Or what do they what do they call again? They're just in the back. There's another word for it. I don't know. A uh, background actor? When, when, when you just are in the back. Let's say you're in a restaurant. Yeah. There's two feature actors. Or like they a really small anything. part. or a really small role. Yeah, extras. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So do yeah. you audition for being an extra? Yeah, it, some, it depends on the the role. I guess it would be more than a background actor. It would be yeah. an, it would be a, somebody that have like, – Exactly. Like just – yeah, just a, a small a little line in us. Anyway, uh, so I understand why they would want to do it. But at the I, I want to live in the real world, and I think that these people should be getting paid. And I don't like the AI thing, the whole AI taking – well, These I know, people's for jobs. example, Eric, you played, we should probably call that up. Eric took my voice and surprised oh, me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? And, and the thing is, so let's say you, I do voiceovers oh, for Oh, wait, once. no, I heard the Joe Biden one. I didn't hear the one of your voice from AI. You didn't? No. Yeah, Eric came up with it without without telling me. So you could use my voice to maybe do the 30-second <gasps> spots, right? So do you want to play it, Eric? 
Hey, welcome back, Brian Kilmeade Show. Just wanted to go over some of these numbers. Um, new poll numbers that's from NBC you. shows not Biden me. with a huge lead over Trump. That's not the- me. Wait, that is wild. What what sort of world are we entering? I don't know. I, don't I know. know that people in you know past generations have had this feeling about other things, um, and it's always ended up being okay. But this one seems really dangerous. Like uh, I know, you, you know, you have somebody's image and voice, and you can make them say or well, do I mean, something, and, and it's so not someone, you. And someone walked me off the ledge saying, "Can't do it." So if you use knock off my voice and use it, I'll sue you. Just like if you're going to Drake, remember Drake in the weekend? Yeah. They they wanted to, some guy generated a wrote a song uh-huh. using them, using their voices, and they had this cease and desist in 48 hours. Good. But so we could still but do that. You, but, but here's you can't the thing, impersonate but, somebody and just steal my credit card. Yeah, but then it goes into like a criminal element and dangerous, and like yeah. the woman whose daughter uh, got well, the phone call. That's a huge problem, and it's scary. And also, do you really want to go through the lawsuits and and all of you know? I'd rather not have the AI m- mimicking you to make you then have to hire a lawyer and so go let's through get, all that. So let's get it out of the way. But if it goes a long time, that's the danger. And this is what Barry Diller said. I think he's as respected as a producer and studio head as anybody. He considered himself a uh, a, a publisher now. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what uh, here's what he said. Cut 35. If, in fact, it doesn't get settled until Christmas or so, mm-hmm. then next year, there's not going to be many programs for anybody to watch. So you're going to see subscriptions get pulled, which is going to reduce the revenue of all these movie companies, television companies, the result of which is that there will be no programs. And at just the time strike is settled, that you want to gear back up, there won't be enough money. So this actually will have devastating effects if it is not settled soon. And the problem with settlement in this case is there's no trust between the parties. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and I don't like the idea of not having anything to watch next year. I watch <laughs> a lot of stuff. Well, you know what someone was telling me? Uh, that that's how reality shows. At the last yeah, I know I heard that. Show. Yeah. So, I mean, but then again, if you're going to do a reality show, don't you have to shoot it? Who, what, what production people are going to be using yeah, it? Yeah, I guess for the writer strike, that's the, I think it was the last writer strike. Oh. So that now, and now there's no writers for yeah. Uh, I cannot believe that you got to interview uh, interview Christopher Nolan. Yeah, it was great. That uh, I mean, he is the I think the most legendary director of our time, and he doesn't put out that many movies. So when he does. You know it's going to be epic. And did I tell you Oppenheimer? I saw it, and it's probably the best movie I've ever seen. Wow. And he wrote it, and you you look at the dialogue. The dialogue is so crisp. There's not a wasted breath. I asked him, too. Um, I asked him off camera. I said, if someone comes up to you and wants to change your dialogue, and you wrote it, you're the director and producer. What did, what did he say? And he said, I'll work with him. Matt Damon, for example, changed a couple of things with me. And he said, I'm fine with that. And part of it is because he's an Academy Award-winning yeah, writer. Yeah, you have to be that status. Yeah. I mean, Robert Downey Jr., he's that uh, actor. And I was listening to him do a, a podcast, and he was saying that he has a piece in his ear for memorization. Yes, I heard that. Is that true? Yeah, I guess so. That would be, you know, to be honest, for me, I don't, I don't understand how that works because that would be very distracting to me to have somebody. Your own voice. I mean, you record your voice, I guess. I guess it's a rhythm like anything else. Yeah, well, he's a good actor, so whatever works for him. He is unbelievable in this. 
unbelievable. Wait, Robert Downey Jr.'s in this movie? Yes. Oh, he is? He oh, is. I didn't know that. I know that. Is it Cillian or Killian Murphy? He's in Peaky Blinders. He plays the main guy. Oh, I don't know anything about him except for he's unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. He is incredible. Yes, yes, yes. Um, you, um, you should watch Peaky Blinders. It's very good. I think you would like it. Well, here is Christopher Nolan talking about the strike. Cut 31. I'm worried right now on behalf of all the families of, uh, you know, guild members who, who are out on strike. But it's an absolutely necessary industrial action. The truth is the companies we work for have arbitrarily changed the way in which they sell the products. The deals will change in the last five years. And the way in which working writers, uh, working actors are compensated hasn't kept up with that. This is the kind of moment that comes along every few decades mm-hmm. in Hollywood. And it needs to be taken care of. And it's not about movie stars like, you know, Matt, uh, you know, Killian or whatever, or directors like myself, writers like myself. It's about working staff writers. It's about, you know, jobbing actors uh, who need to pay their mortgages and keep, keep food on the table. So it has to be dealt with. And, yeah, the quicker it's dealt with, the better. But that obviously comes from both sides. Interesting. I don't know a whole lot about the money and finance side of this, but I do think that he he brings up a very good and obvious point that people are just consuming entertainment in such a different way because of COVID. I mean, the fact that you get movies like blockbuster movies in 2020 that nobody was going to the movie theater. It was straight to your your home, you know, your TV. It was straight to streaming and people were willing to spend, you know, $30 to watch a movie because to to be honest, I liked it more because, you know, then you get to be in your like comfies and you get to have a glass of wine and you be on, be on the couch. And I was willing to spend that money. And I think a lot of people were. And now people are kind of used to that and expecting. Oh, I want to go to the theater. My husband is a huge movie theater guy, though. Oh, my gosh. There's two Nobody things likes popcorn more than him. Really? <laughs> uh, well, there's two things that I get the sense that you're totally giving in on. You don't love going to games. You don't like going to concerts, <laughs> and now you don't like going to movies, and your husband oh likes all three, right? So, wow, I am so lame. Yeah, what is wrong with me? I was telling Brian at, during one of the commercial breaks uh, that I don't even know how this conversation started, but I don't really like concerts. And I, I think it's because I haven't ever seen somebody that I really want to see. It's a void in my life that's odd. I've never been to like – I want. I, you didn't I know would you love had to go to a, a Carrie Underwood concert. I've never been. I've been to, like, concerts that my husband wants to go to. I've seen That's Pearl Jam twice. Mm. And one time, I mean, it was, we were in Chicago, which is, like, Pearl Jam's city. And it, I, was, I was so tired because, you know, you work. This was when I was in my early 20s, too. I was working an overnight shift. I was doing I miss. I was doing yeah, a business. Pearl is now things. 63. Hang on. Well, thank you. For, yeah, I guess I shouldn't. Anyway, I flew in to see Pete, and we went immediately to the Pearl Jam concert, and I fell asleep. You did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in this loud, was, thunderous music, and you're sound asleep. He's, he, he's like having a good time, and then he looks over, he taps, he's like, I cannot believe that you, this is embarrassing. So the one thing Get is, up. but don't you think, Carly, too, even if you weren't asleep, at a concert, I like listening, but like there are people that just like really getting into the concert. Yeah. I feel a little self-conscious that I don't. Uh, you know, I'll take it. I, I'm not really a big dancer. I, I understand that they're the show. Uh-huh. And then when you watch Aaron Rodgers, you saw him with, and do you see him with Tanya? Tanya. Uh, Who dare? <laughs> I can't help you. <laughs> I can Google one? it. Huh? Nope. No, Aaron Rodgers. What concert did he go to? Oh, he went to a. Hold on, let's see. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was right. He went to Taylor Swift. Oh, he, and oh, this he went guy, to Taylor Swift concert. And oh, I you didn't see, see that. him? No. He is just, everyone's staring at him. He's a big guy. And oh, he's I just, see pictures and of And he's it. just like zoning out. <laughs> I mean, I just, I admire people that could just relax like that. For, for me. Um, I think he's been known to do some illicit substances. So maybe that. Right. Was maybe that played a role. But he's very open about it. Right. Yeah. All yeah. right, back in a moment. We're going to find out if there's need <laughs> to. Carly's going to be on One Nation tonight at 8. But <gasps> I'm gonna, so excited. Right, yeah. and, and you're going to see that uh, Saturday night at 8 o'clock, so Carly's going to be on. But uh, when we come back, we'll find out if Carly needs to know more. Um, another thing, I hate soccer. Otherwise known as metric football, it's a dumb sport that nobody should ever play. And if you can't tell, this is an AI-generated voice. I'm not wearing a shirt right now. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. You know what's oh, funny about, about what you said, which is unusual because you're rarely funny. But yet you book me all, all the, the time because I love you. Uh, you see the hypocrisy. But the new country music is Hollywood now. The old country is right. very uh, Fox-centric, old school. The new country is very Hollywood. Yeah. So, I mean, John Rich and company, you talk to those guys. They, don't, they want a big separation. Yeah, they can't stand you. Right. I have, I have, I have can, I, can I get a second source on that? No, here's a second source. You're ugly, too. Uh, <laughs> terrible. Are you going to apologize now or in the break? I'll just say during the break how much I appreciate you being on the show, but then I'm going to rip you to shreds afterwards. That was uh, Greg Gutfeld last night. What is the source of this animosity, which is know. a joke? Huh? It's, oh, yeah, it's, it's, you yeah. guys actually like each other. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, I really see I it. like both of you. I don't. It's like... You know, your two bros fighting, but not really fighting. Right. How often do you do the show? Uh, I just did it last Friday. Uh, and I, I keep it to Fridays because of the timing of things. Because uh, they do it at 2.30. They do it a little earlier on Friday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and now with the babe, I got to get home. Right. So, you know, what's interesting because you don't have a babysitter. That means you never go out. <laughs> well, miss? well, Brock is five months old, and four of those months I was on maternity leave. So we're still just, like, working out those kinks. But we have a nanny, and she's wonderful. But all of our um, weekends have been spent with him, and that's what I want. I don't want a babysitter and to go out without him. He's so cute. Right. And you just showed me, uh, and I have to bear, I'll be, I'll be your second source on that. Thank you. Um, but let's talk about it. There's this couple of things I want to talk about. Okay. Uh, one of which is... The RFK, the way he was treated yeah. yesterday, and before we get into specifics of it, I've never seen a person of prominence treated like that, and then you factor in it's the own party. Yeah. The most famous family in America, Kennedy, RFK, was 13 years old when his dad was assassinated. He was right there. He's part of history. He is somebody who's always been a Democrat. He always had these opinions, strong opinions. But you would think they'd be somewhat deferential. They didn't let him finish. They cut him off. They labeled him a, a, a racist and a sexist mm-hmm. and anti-Semitic. Well, I think that um, you're right. And I also think that it he's chipping away at the narrative that he is, you know, this crazy lunatic vaccine denier. And I, I, it, I think that him running for president is a very good thing for his own history and, you know, of, of who he is. 
because his message is now getting out there. Well, he did the Joe Rogan interview, and I think now people are more receptive to hearing about vaccines and sort of questioning how the CDC and the NIH operate because of COVID. And I listened to the interview, and I don't know if he's right. I don't. He And he even admits he, he's not 100% sure if he's right. He wants to debate other doctors, and they won't debate him. About vaccines. Well, he's not a doctor, so well, he see, wants to debate, debate he doctors. He wants the same rigors with vaccines right. that they give to but drugs. The one thing that I have to say that made me really listen to him is he said, and it's because of just what I went through. Just and you just talked to him. I did. Um, and he said – he questioned why when a baby is born, the first thing that they get is the hepatitis B vaccine. And within 24 hours of Brock's birth, I mean, I held him for an hour and he already had a vaccine in his system and it was for hepatitis B. And I didn't question it because I was like, OK, sure, I'm sure he needs it. I mean, that hepatitis, you get hepatitis B if you are a drug addict or ha- are having risky sex. Why does a one day old baby need that? RFK Jr. says it's because when the... Um, Pharmaceutical companies made this vaccine. They were marketing it to irresponsible people, and those people weren't buying it. So they went to the government and said, what do we do with all of this? We just wasted all this money. He said, we'll give it to babies. Give it to babies in hospitals. They'll take it. And so we- then you start to go, wait a second. Yeah. So is there something – is there really something to be said about what he's saying and questioning all of this? I don't know. I mean I've talked – because of – I listened to this. But I, I, want I to do, do my want research. to hear his side. Yeah, and so you can now on certain podcasts, but on others you can't. And this goes back to the censorship thing where he's trying to become the, what he calls the podcast president, where he's doing podcasts the way that uh, Donald Trump was the social media president. That's one of the reasons why he got elected because that's how he got his message out there. He's being censored from certain podcasts, and some of these podcast hosts that he's friends with are saying, I can't book you anymore because this is my livelihood. And then you see what happened on Capitol Hill yesterday – it was repeat history again. Cole I wish Shimkus. we had more time. I know. Well, we had a half hour. Oh, no. I mean, that's that's part of this, the curse. If people want to be around. I will see you on One Nation. On what you, what you promise? I will be there. You're, we'll close the show, Carl Shimkus. Let's do it. 8 o'clock, Saturday. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Don't miss a minute of the show. I come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. we got some breaking news to go over. Sad news, Tony Bennett passed away at Alzheimer's, but still great uh, guy, great performer. Uh, Christopher Nolan, uh, the director, the writer, producer, superstar. One of the finest strikes in the country. I had a chance to interview him. This is going to be the only place you hear the unedited interview. Uh, Christopher Nolan will be on this hour. So if you're going to see a movie, and I have nothing to do with the movie. It's not a Fox movie. Fox and Evian. In the movies, best movie I've seen in quite some time. I mean, I know people will go three hours. You will not regret it. So uh, Andy McCarthy standing by. So let's, And there is some breaking news on the Donald Trump situation. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The truth is the companies we work for have arbitrarily changed the way in which they sell the products, the way in which working writers, uh, working actors are compensated hasn't kept up with that. This is the kind of moment that comes along every few decades in Hollywood. And there it is, Christopher Nolan talking about the strike. We're talking about the movies. We're talking about the writers. We're talking about the actors, maybe Broadway. What is the latest? And are they in danger of killing the entertainment industry? Some say yes. 
Number two. When the president travels on Air Force One, more recently, President Biden has started to use the smaller set of stairs that come out from the belly of Air Force One. But it's yet another example of how the White House and his team around him are trying to adjust things to accommodate for his age. Uh, that is the Biden decline. You'll hear the latest mumbling effort, RFK Circus and the GOP horse race. We have everything 2024 related. Number one. I never saw that 1023, and I'm the lead case agent from the IRS, and the fact that I didn't have that information that could have corroborated other evidence that we we had in our possession, I mean, that's where it's, it, for me, when, when I heard that and I, I saw that, it was frustrating. Uh, that is Joe Ziegler, and you saw Ziegler on uh, testifying on Capitol Hill. That is cut from a podcast that he did with Megyn Kelly. The Hunter headaches intensify. Senator Grassley drops a document that shows VP Biden was cashing in along with his son. If this is in fact true, it is as bad as it get. Let the Democratic spin begin, and let's find out who this FBI, very credible FBI witness was. But first things first, Andy, this just got dropped on my desk, and I'm sure you now know. Uh, the judge, Aileen Cannon, appointed by President Trump, has decided to start the trial on the classified documents in May. So he wanted to wait till after the election. They wanted to start in December. What do you think about this decision? I wouldn't uh, set it in stone, Brian. And the reason is, um, as I pointed out before, the People who have to – and I say this on the basis of uh, personal knowledge, having had to litigate some of these things. Um, when you're involved in a case where the Classified Information Procedures Act controls the admissibility of evidence, you have to hash out all of the questions of what evidence will come into the trial before the trial starts because everything that's coming into the trial has to be declassified. Um, so that the jury can see it. We don't give we don't give the jury a security clearance. We have a lengthy process that goes on before the trial to make sure that all the evidence that comes in is can be public and the jury can view it. That takes a lot of time to litigate. I think what Judge Cannon is probably doing is trying to make sure that this thing doesn't careen out of control. So I would look at May as more of a control date than. I mean, I'm sure in her mind she'd love to get the trial started in May, um, but I, I just I, I think that there are going to be forces beyond their control that prevent that from happening. Well, we know the Alvin Bragg case starts in I think February, right? Uh, March 25th. I know, it's my anniversary. That's why I know. All right. Uh, so March 25th, that's supposed to start. So we'll see if that gets started right away. Um, could there be a conviction there? And could this guy go? Could President Trump go to jail? Well, my, my, I mean, is it possible? Um, like nobody goes to jail for anything in New York anymore, right? I wouldn't except think. Maybe, yeah, except except uh, Trump's CFO, right? <laughs> yeah, you got to put him in Rikers. <laughs> right, he's sitting in Rikers when, every, when the bad guys are out on the street. But, you know, look, I, I still think, Brian, we're talking theoretically, could he be sent to jail for a criminal conviction? Yeah, it's a four, these are four-year counts, and he, and, you know, Bragg took one thing and turned it into like 150 counts, right? Or was it to 30? I can't remember the number, but it's close to 40 counts, right, that they sliced and diced this thing into. But I still think if sanity prevails, and that's not always uh, something that happens, particularly in New York, that case should never get to trial. It should be thrown out prior to trial. So from, from what you see is January 6th, if, uh, if Trump is telling the truth about the target letter, 
uh, judging by the witness list and Jack Smith's, how he profiles, do you think where an indictment is inevitable? Well, if Trump really did get a target letter, I would say so. And I have to tip my hat then to, you know, to Bill Barr, who said that, you know, he thought in recent weeks that um, it, he he was getting a strong suspicion that there was going to be an indictment. I've thought up until now, Brian, up until very recently, that uh, what Smith would do with January 6th, because he's a special counsel. Like when I was a prosecutor, if there was no charges, I would just close the file and move on to the next case. But a special counsel, as we know, gets to write a report. So I thought what he was going to do was write a narrative report about January 6th and dump it at some propitious time for the Democrats during the run-up to the election. But it looks he's doing all the things that you do when you're going to indict. And if Trump really did get a target letter, that's the Justice Department's way of telling the suspect that uh, they pretty much decided to indict him. And it's more a matter of when than if. Gary Shapley and Joseph Ziegler are on Capitol Hill to talk about all the roadblocks that stood in their way from fully investigating Hunter Biden. One of the quotes from you, Andy McCarthy, was the Democrats ran into a buzzsaw with these two. Why? Because they were such good witnesses. I, you know, I would just point out to people, and I say this with, uh, with, with real uh, modesty of experience, um, you know, prosecutors usually know more about the law uh, because there's a lawyer on the case, right, than the investigating agents do. That's just a common thing. Where I found in my cases over 20 years that it was uncommon was in tax prosecutions. Uh, tax is a very abstruse kind of esoteric area of the law, and it's typical that tax agents know more about tax law and tax enforcement than most prosecutors do, and certainly than most people on Capitol Hill do, which is not a slap at them. It's just a, it's just a fact that this is a very intricate and unique area of the law. And these two guys happen to be like their two best agents, right? One of them, Shapley, actually ran offices and has run international investigations. He's like his investigations are personally responsible for reeling in about three hundred. Uh, was it three point five billion dollars in in you know, evaded taxes that have been recovered because of his work. And he says that Ziegler is the best investigator in the country who worked for him personally. So what happened on on Wednesday, it's, that was the day, if I'm remembering right, that the hearing was, um, as soon as the Democrats started to ask questions, Jamie Raskin began, he got clobbered. You know, he started out saying, isn't it true that agents and prosecutors always argue about charges? And Shapley said to him, not in this case. In this case, the agents and the prosecutors were in unanimous agreement who were working on the case that felony pro- felony charges were appropriate here. It was the higher ups in the Biden Justice Department who put the kibosh on all this. So the Democrats realized if we try to you know poke holes in the story of these guys, they know more than we do, and they're going to kill us. So what they started to do, you know, after the first couple got clobbered. They use their five-minute rounds to, you know, filibuster about uh, Donald Trump and Black Lives Matter. justice, yeah. You know, but they didn't want to ask any more questions because they were getting killed every time they asked. Here is a a little from when Shapley and Ziegler went on together on the Megyn Kelly show, cut one. Even a nuance of us doing a walk-by, and I can recall my testimony saying that a walk-by is essentially you want to walk past someone so you're not in any gear that identifies you at all. 
you want to walk past someone's residence and to verify that they're home or what, whatever it might be. And even that was U.S. attorney agreed with it, but the leadership at DOJ tax did not agree with it. So again, I go back to, did U.S. attorney David Weiss really have the authority here or was he being limited by other people in DOJ? Okay, so... Brian, can I tell you the most yeah. important thing about this? Because I think we've talked about it before. Um, I've been saying all along that one of the tells on this investigation is that the Hunter Biden case was carried as a tax case. Now, you know, it's, it could have been a money laundering case. It could have been a FARA case. It could have been a gun case. But they made it a, a tax case. And it's not just because there were tax charges. The rules of the Justice Department are... No matter how, who the U.S. attorney is, no matter where in the country the crime is committed, the U.S. attorney does not have authority to bring tax charges. They have to be approved by Maine Justice. So all the time that Garland was saying that, you know, uh, Weiss in, in uh, Delaware was the final decision maker, I kept trying to point out to people, but it's a tax case, which means the Biden appointees at the Justice Department have to approve it. It's, it, you know, Weiss doesn't have authority. No U.S. attorney in the country has authority to bring tax charges unless the tax division at Maine Justice greenlights it. But they wanted to, but they kept saying that. So you're saying it's don't get caught up in the districts that reject Weiss because it was a tax case anyway. Well, I'd say a couple of things about that. First, it was a tax case, so Maine Justice had to sign off on it. What we hear is that Maine Justice ultimately did sign off on at least some things. Um, But the other thing I would point out is all this nonsense about how they were blocked by the Biden-appointed U.S. attorney in in Washington and the Biden-appointed U.S. attorney in California. Those guys work for Garland. When there's, when there's a turf battle in the Justice Department, it's like not like a U.S. attorney says, oh, well, the, U, the district U.S. attorney doesn't want to bring the charge. I guess that's the end of the case. You go down to the Justice Department and fight the, that out. And if the, if the attorney general – what happens is the attorney general hears out the, the competing sides, and what he could have done was ordered those U.S. attorneys to work for Weiss, work with Weiss on the case. This idea that they blocked it and like and Garland is just like this helpless witness figure who doesn't have any control over this is just laughable. But they don't even say but they don't admit that these Matt Graves and the guy in Los Angeles uh, push back on the case. They don't even admit that. Yeah, well, because they don't want to talk about it, because the whole the whole story, Brian, doesn't hang together because this is Garland. You know, they don't want to talk. You know, they love the idea of saying, you know. Weiss was confused about what his authority was, and it, was, he, it wasn't clear whether he could, you know, bump the uh, bump the, tr- the case past the district U.S. It's a bunch of nonsense. But the attorney general runs the Justice Department. Um, even when the attorney general chooses a special counsel, which should have been done in this case, um, even the special counsel reports to the, to the attorney general. But what was supposed to happen here? is not that you wait for a, uh, if you're the attorney general, you don't wait for a U.S. attorney to ask you for special counsel authority because that's like asking to be fired. Under the, under the rules that control special counsels, it explicitly says a special counsel has to be brought from, it, from outside the government. Well, that's what makes you special. You have detachment from the government chain of command. 
So this idea that Weiss should have asked Garland for special counsel authority is ridiculous because the obligation is not on the on the U.S. attorney to ask for the authority. It's for the attorney general to recognize that there's a conflict of interest such that the Justice Department can't investigate the thing in the normal course, which means it's on Garland to pick a special counsel. It wasn't, you know, Weiss is just the fall guy in all of this. I don't, I'm not saying he distinguished himself. I think he's a weasel. But, you know, everybody's looking at Weiss. The problem here is Garland. Garland's the one who didn't do his job. Got it. Uh, Andy McCarthy, fascinating time. We need it broken down uh, in civilian terms. You're, you're always w- willing to do it. Andy, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Have a great weekend. You too. one 408 7669 I have not touched on this 1023 form that has been released by Senator Grassley that shows it was a high-valued uh, confidential source, human source, that told us and witnessed uh, the CFO and CEO of Burisma uh, paying the Bidens. And I'm not just talking Hunter. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. More on that in a moment. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Based on everything we now know, it's very clear to me that the FBI lacked an interest and a curiosity in actually pursuing these criminal investigations, both against Hunter Biden and against Joe Biden. And the question is why and who decided that there was no curiosity or desire to investigate these to the fullest extent of the law. And, you know, this Shokin firing has always troubled me because of the he was investigating Burisma for criminal acts. Joe Biden leverages a billion dollars of United States taxpayers dollars to get him fired and the investigation against Burisma, who Hunter Biden is very closely associated with, goes away. I mean, that in and of itself should make the FBI want to get to the bottom of this and run it to ground. But as John describes, they just decided not to. And I think that is uh, that's beyond malpractice when it comes to criminal investigations. So what they had is a a, a whistleblower come forward and a, and a source for the FBI. He said, listen, I, was, I witnessed this whole Burisma thing go down. So he came into the FBI, and the FBI took down his side of the story. It's called the 1023. Now, originally, they went up and said uh, they got tipped off. Hey, this, this person uh, who saw and witnessed all this Burisma stuff happen – told uh, Senator Grassley, said, listen, I, I gave my 1023 form to the FBI, asked for it because I stand by that story and it's verified and I'll stand by everything. And I, you take an oath and you, know, you can put me in jail if I'm lying. So the FBI took it and they said, we have no 1023. He says, yes, you do. Finally, they go, we have it, but it's, uh, we can't let you see it. He goes, it's unclassified. Let us see it. He goes, well, there's parts of it that's classified. He goes, well, we'll redact them. So Grassley gets it. And then Grassley released it yesterday. And here's what it says. It says that Burisma Holdings hired Hunter Biden to have his father protect the company. Hence, the firing of the prosecutor that was investigating Burisma. Burisma feared Shokin, that's him, probe would stop its efforts to get publicly traded in the U.S. Burisma knew that Hunter had no experience and said, quote, he was as dumb as his dog but sought additional counsel. Now, one of the lines was, why don't you pay $50,000 and defend yourself against Shokin? He said, well, he laughed. He goes, why are you laughing? He goes, well, I used a five, but I had to spend $5 million 
five million for Joe and five million for Hunter. Wow. The CHS, meaning this guy, believed the payments made to the Bidens were illicit in nature. The FBI received a lead involving cryptocurrency. The FBI long knew that Joe's association called him the big guy. The FBI began receiving information on the Biden and Burisma as early as 2017. And on a side note, they knew the laptop was real in 2019. And the minute the story came out, they used it. uh, They were told not to use it as an investigative tool. But they said they knew it was real. And then they get all their intel buddies to sign a paper saying they know it's not. Think about how diabolical and fundamentally corrupt that is. I don't know this guy, but he was strong enough to say, swear me in. I swear it's true. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back. Uh, in the middle of the week, it was so tough to do. I had so much going on, um, and but I had an opportunity to interview Christopher Nolan, you know, the legendary producer and director of Batman, the trilogy, and all that stuff, uh, Dark Knight, whatever they call it. And everyone just says, you listen to actors talk, they say he's the best of the best. And with all the actors on strike, he's doing all his own publicity for Oppenheimer. And I've watched some of the interviews. I see how passionate he is. And they said, Brian, you have an opportunity to do the interview, but you have to see the movie. And I said, do me a favor. Just send me the clip. You know, send it. I'll watch it on my uh, iPad. And they said, absolutely not. It was set, it was, you need to see an IMAX theater. They've rented one, 53rd Street. You got to go. I go, you want me to sit down from 1230 to 3.30 in the middle of the day and watch a movie? Well, I'm so glad I did. It is Oppenheimer. It is fantastic. And bringing us inside the process and the man and why he did the movie, here he is, Christopher Nolan. I am not here to help, Robert. I knew you could do this without me. Why did you come? To talk about after. The power you're about to reveal will forever outlive the Nazis. And the world is not prepared. You could lift the stone without being ready for the snake that's revealed. We have to make the politicians understand this isn't a new weapon. It's a new world. I'll be out there doing what I can, but you, you are an American Prometheus. A man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And they'll respect that. One of the most anticipated movies of the year, Oppenheimer, is finally hitting theaters today. And joining us now is Oscar-nominated director. One of the best in the business, Christopher Nolan, is here. And it's great to meet you in person, of everything you accomplished. And this is one of the best movies I have ever seen. What made you feel that this is a story that the world needs to see? The story of Robert Oppenheimer is simply the most dramatic story I've ever encountered. I mean, whether you're looking at fiction or historical fact, it's a story with incredible stakes, incredible suspense. You know, this is a, a person who changed the world forever. We live in his world, like it or not, and, and we always will. When, when did you realize that, uh, how did you come on the biography, the story, that made you want to know more to research to the point where you could write a script like this? Well, I think for me the, the real hook was an incident that I actually referred to in my previous film, Tenet, in, in dialogue, uh, which was the fact that Oppenheimer and his fellow lead scientists on the Manhattan Project in the lead-up to the first test detonation of an atomic device, which they called Trinity, they couldn't completely eliminate the possibility that when they triggered that device, they might set fire to the atmosphere and destroy the entire world. 
Um, that's just the most dramatic situation I've ever heard of. So I was interested in exploring Oppenheimer as a potential film project. Uh, and then I read American Prometheus, a great book by Kai Bird and Martin Sherman, 25 years 25 years to write the book? 25 years to write the book. And so I'm standing on the shoulders of those, those giants. 25 years of research, of incredible detail. It's a beautifully laid out book. That gave me the confidence to take on such a complicated project. You know, I felt like I had that, that basis of knowledge to work from. And, and, and Christopher, the way you line it up, you got the world war. You have nuclear energy. Uh, you also have communism, Nazism all turned into one, and it all really happened. I mean, the, dr the drama that was taking place and what was happening here uh, was really crazy because there was a sense that if the, if the Nazis got it and beat us to the bomb, mm. the world would forever be changed. And you got to figure that Hitler was going to use it. So not only did you have to invent something, you had to win the race to invent something that didn't exist. Yeah, it was a crazy race once the atom was split. A lot of the scientists, a lot of the great physicists around the world pretty quickly figured out the potential for some kind of doomsday device, some kind of bomb based on, on that fact of nature. And so there was a race that started and, and Oppenheimer was recruited by General Groves uh, you know, to, to lead the laboratory at Los Alamos. Uh, and one of the things that I found most dramatic about this is that Oppenheimer knew all the German scientists. You know, he knew the, the chess player on the other side of the board, you know, Heisenberg. You know, in his uh, early years, in the 1920s, he'd gone to Europe and he'd studied and, and collaborated with a lot of these scientists. And so he's sitting on one side with his team, putting his team together, uh, knowing what they're doing on the other side. And uh, the stakes were very, very high for the whole world. Can you say the casting, Killian Murphy, unbelievable? Um, um, just, uh, I think he's going to blow people away with this. How you guys don't walk away with every award possible is unbelievable. But you mentioned uh, chain reaction, mm -hmm. and that when asked a couple of times, uh, Oppenheimer asked, "Are you going to blow up the world?" They couldn't be sure they wouldn't. Here's here's a look. Neutrons smash into nucleus, releasing neutrons to smash into other nuclei. Criticality, point of no return, massive explosive force. This time, the chain reaction doesn't stop. It would ignite the atmosphere. When we detonate an atomic device, we might start a chain reaction that destroys the world. He's talking to Einstein there. Yeah. Think about that conversation. <laughs> uh, amazing. I mean, uh, in the later years after the war, Oppenheimer wound up uh, running the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, and Einstein had been there for years and was there, and so they would meet and talk, and you're looking at two generations of the leading scientists of their, of their day, and that's Einstein played by Tom Conti, who I've worked with before, is a wonderful British actor, um, and Killian and Tom, they really brought an incredible sense of intimacy to those, those scenes, and I really, really love those parts of the movie. So I think the story is really about a, a, a guy, too, Oppenheimer. You think he invents the bomb, he's a hero for a brief period of time. But you make it pretty clear that this is a mixed blessing. Mm -hmm. He might have ended the war and the good guys won, uh, but he's saying to himself, we've got to stop the hydrogen bomb. And his interaction with Truman does not go well. Truman feels a big victory that Oppenheimer should get some credit for. He's like, no, I don't think we should really do this. I think we should look into the future and understand where we're heading. 
How was he able to see the future? How did you make sure, how did, why did you want so much to make sure people understood? Not only was he brilliant, he also could foresee how complicated the world we're in right now is getting. Well, it's one of the things that really drew me to the story is this is not a story about naivete. This is not a story about scientists who had no idea what was going to happen with their work. They made the atomic bomb because if they didn't, the Nazis would. They had no choice. They had to do war. We needed for the Allies to win the war. Um, but they must have known, as very, very brilliant scientists, where this could all go. And Oppenheimer, more than anyone else, as things developed after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he's somebody with incredible vision and foresight. So he's looking to the future. He's looking to where the arms race against the Russians is going to go during the Cold War. And he's trying to do his best to have a voice in policy. But, of course, this is the first time the scientists were ever asked by the military to try and win a war. That had never happened before. And so suddenly science finds itself in the position of, okay, we've created this thing. What say do we have in how it's used? Do we have a say in how it's used? Or is that the politicians? You know? And so Oppenheimer wound up in this, in the post-war years, he wound up in this really complicated situation between science, government, and the media. Um, and he did what he could to try and influence policy as best he could until the point at which things turned against him and it, it got really ugly. And in the end, do you think when he passed away, we don't have his death in the movie, when he passed away, is he looked at as a hero? Because he did get his security clearance taken away. Uh, people associated him with communism, his wife admitted she was a communist. Do you think that when he passed away, he was viewed as a hero in America? I think that his reputation has has changed over time. He was rehabilitated to some degree, uh, you know, by Lyndon Johnson giving him the Fermi Medal. Uh, and then over years, it's taken a very long time, but just this year, uh, the Department of Energy uh, revoked uh, the, the finding against him in the security hearing. It took that long for the U.S. government to acknowledge that this great wrong had been done to him. So I think his reputation will always be an ambiguous one. Um, he was an incredible hero for his country, a great patriot. Uh, one of his great quotes is, you know, damn it, I happen to love this country. Um, that's a big part of who he was. But he also had this past that became inconvenient to where the world went once fascism had been defeated and communism became the big threat. Uh, and so... He, I think he'll always have this, this very uh, ambiguous position in history. And I think his story, it's a cautionary tale. It raises all kinds of troubling questions. And the film doesn't pretend to have any kind of easy answers. It's really, uh, it's just incredibly dramatic to live through this guy's experience. You know, sit in his shoes, view things through his eyes for a few hours. And talk about drama, real life drama. We're in the battle, we end up in a cold war with the Soviet Union and a race. Uh, to make sure we keep the bomb. Here's the moment in the movie when they realize uh, the Russians might have it. Listen. One of our B-29s over the North Pacific has detected radiation. Do we have the filter paper? There's no doubt what this is. White House censors it down. Wishful thinking, I'm afraid. Are those the long-range detection filter papers? It's an atomic test. The Russians have a bomb. Russians have a bomb, and they had people inside Los Alamos in the Manhattan Project? No spoilers, please. 
strange to talk about spoilers when you talk about historical well, we, yeah, drama, but, but the way in which we tell the story, there are surprises, surprises along those lines, a lot of accusations flying uh, all different ways, and some uh, incredible revelations. And that uh, is Robert Downey Jr. playing Louis Strauss, who had a very complicated relationship with Oppenheimer. And uh, Downey, working with Downey, who's one of the great you know, movie stars of, of today, but also one of the most incredible actors, losing himself in that part. Uh, and the relationship between the two men develops, I think, in some really extraordinary ways, particularly post-1945, uh, as the threat of communism, the Russians, and everything supplants that fascism. The world changes again, the whole game changes, and Oppenheimer and Strauss are kind of caught in the middle of it. There is, uh, you're out here doing it, and I'm thrilled, but normally you'd have Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr. doing a lot of publicity, right. uh, and you're the man pushing it, you wrote it, you produced it, I, and you're attached to it, I'm so glad you're here. How do you feel about this strike? I know Barry Diller came out over the weekend and just said if it goes too long, it is really going to be a, a detrimental long-term to the business, because if you go out with Christmas and there's no mm -hmm. movies, and we can, you can't shoot by September, you're in trouble. When does... When does uh, Christopher Nolan get worried? I'm worried right now on behalf of all the families of, uh, you know, Guild members who, who are out on strike. You know, um, nobody's working when both the writers, you know, my Guild and SAG is out on strike. The sooner this is resolved, the better. But it's an absolutely necessary industrial action. The truth is the companies we work for have arbitrarily changed the way in which they sell the products. The deals have all changed in the last five years, and the way in which working writers, uh, working actors are compensated hasn't kept up with that. They haven't changed those deals yet, and they have to do that. This is the kind of moment that comes along every few decades in Hollywood, and it needs to be taken care of. And it's not about movie stars like, you know, Matt, uh, you know, Killian or whatever, or directors like myself, writers like myself. It's about working staff writers. It's about, you know, jobbing actors. Uh, who need to pay their mortgages and keep, keep food on the table. So it has to be dealt with. And, yeah, the quicker it's dealt with, the better. But that obviously comes from both sides. Right. Uh, in the meantime, you do have something to see in the theaters. Uh, Oppenheimer in the theaters uh, today, uh, this weekend, and this is a huge hit. I can't imagine what it would be like writing it, uh, let alone producing it, and how gratified you must feel right now. Or are you nervous? Very nervous. Never gets any easier. I mean, the film's not finished till it's out there for the audience to tell us what it is we've done, and, and that's happening tomorrow. So. How much do the awards mean to you? Uh, not much. I mean, we, we make the films for audiences, and it's great to have a film like this come out in the summer, which is when people are really primed uh, to go see things on the big screen and, and hopefully have an exciting experience. Yeah. And, that's what we do it for. It's 118 degrees outside, so go inside. The air conditioning <laughs> exactly. in the theater. Christopher Nolan, thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. How great was that? I mean, if, when you see the movie, I think you'll appreciate it more. Uh, when you, You're going to want to go see a documentary. On Fox Nation, there is a documentary on uh, Robert Oppenheimer, and it was a great primer for me before I saw the movie. You might want to do the same thing. Are you listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show? Back with your calls in a moment. one 408 Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Thank you. Thank you. That's what applause sounds like, Brian. <laughs> Brian, uh, what is the real outrage here 
you work at Fox and Friends, you have the antenna of outrage. Yeah. You know, what is right. really, like, if you were doing this on Fox and Friends, what would piss you off most? Well, first off, a few observations. When, Cat, you were talking, he looks at you like you're Zeus, Apollo, and Plato. That's how everyone he is so in awe. When I talk, you are just waiting for me to take a breath yes. to say something. Do you notice the different way you treat people? I, you know, I, I, all I hear when you talk, all I hear when you talk is stupid, 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 stupid. See, Aww. this is this is. You know, we're on. Oh. I know. No, I know. Yeah. I know. Okay. A couple but we're of, on at ten o'clock now, right. so it's like. But I, wait, I why were you looking at him instead of me when I was talking? Oh, oh. more outrage. Okay. Does that come out of my time? Yes, it does. Okay. No, no, no. I, Reclaim I, I, it. I give back your time. <laughs> Thank you very Re- much. Reclaim it. So that was last night uh, with Greg Gutfeld. You know, with this, was this come out since that show as his 1023 form where this, uh, where this uh, witness comes forward and talks about the Bidens, how much money they made. And he did it under oath. He did it to the FBI. And the Republicans finally got what they've been requesting for a, almost a, uh, a six months now. And remember, they're in the minority in the Senate, and Grassley's the one who released it. He looked at it, finally saw it, and said, I want everyone to see it, at which time they say the Bidens made $5 million each uh, for this Prisma contract. They knew that Hunter Biden had no qualifications. They called him as dumb as their dog, uh, according to the CFO and CEO of Burisma, but they did it for the influence. And they did it to get certain things done to preserve Burisma and bring it public. So... Uh, Craig writes, says this, the thing about the Biden's amazing that people even try to question it now with a straight face after the documents get released. The GOP, we have cooperating evidence galore, complete timeline of events, 17 plus million in hidden wires from foreign governments or foreign entities directly aligned to said government of the Bidens. All of these shell companies owned by the Bidens and their companies are constructs that financial experts advise are only done for laundering lots of illicit money. Hey, Democrats, it's all based on old debunked lies. That's all they say. Just distracted from our indictments of Trump. Uh, This goes back and forth, back and forth, and people are finding it extremely frustrating. I do, too. But sooner or later, if the money is there and it can't be accounted for and people see all this stuff front and center and they can prove illegality, I think if there's enough time, the Democrats turn on them and say, you're too old anyway. And they'll they'll do it in a more subtle way and they're gone. Now, that might be bad news for Republicans. They might think that there's a better uh, – he's their best chance of winning the White House. I don't know. The establishment candidate, everyone consolidated behind, I'm pretty sure uh, getting Joe Biden out of the way would probably be best for the country. Listen to him yesterday, cut 25. You know, I came to office determined to strengthen the middle class. I often say, and I mean it sincerely, you know, Wall Street, good folks down there, but they didn't build the middle class. They didn't build America. The middle class was built by the middle class, and the unions built the middle class. And it changed the economic direction of this country. Because we, I got tired of trickle-down economics. I've never been a big fan. If the wealthy do very well, I'm a capitalist. I like the wealthy to be able to people be wealthy. But if the mere fact they do well doesn't mean everybody else does well. You feel better now? I don't. Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't forget, One Nation, Saturday at 8. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division.
It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade Show. Moving your way through the week. Thanks so much for being with us all week long. We come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. We're heard around the country, around the world. Uh, uh, Kennedy will be with us. Hosts of Kennedy Saves the World podcast. Of course, Fox News uh, extraordinary talent. Uh, and Shannon Bream is standing by. Talk about extraordinary talent. She's got our Fox News Sunday show ready to go. we got One Nation still formatting. We'll have Christopher Nolan interview on that. Uh, and also get his take on the strike. So before we get to Shannon, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. The truth is the companies we work for have arbitrarily changed the way in which they sell the products, the way in which working writers, uh, working actors are compensated hasn't kept up with that. This is the kind of moment that comes along every few decades in Hollywood. And that is why the strike is real and could kill entertainment as we know it. The strike is writers, actors, maybe Broadway play, Broadway going dark. If it doesn't end soon, look out. Number two. When the president travels on Air Force One, more recently, President Biden has started to use the smaller set of stairs that come out from the belly of Air Force One. But it's yet another example of how the White House and his team around him are trying to adjust things to accommodate for his age. Yeah, Laura Egan of Politico, the Biden decline, RFK circus, and the GOP horse race. We have it all. Number one. I never saw that 1023, and I'm the lead case agent from the IRS, and the fact that I didn't have that information that could have corroborated other evidence that we we had in our possession, I mean, that's where it's, it, for me, when, when I heard that and I, I saw that, it was frustrating. Yeah, Joseph Ziegler. Hunter headaches intensified as Senator Grassley drops a document that shows VP Biden was cashing in all along with his son. If true, devastating and could destroy any hope he has of getting another four years. I would think if any of this stuff is true is and a lot of it. I mean, it, it is so hard to read some of these disclaimers and to watch Akeem Jeffries call it a clown show and say it's a waste of time, old leads and, and conspiracy theories. There's nothing conspiratorial about this stuff. These are people coming forward, witnessing things that we all know there's something up. Fundamentally, how does somebody get this rich making $200,000 a year? Why is Hunter Biden making millions internationally with no experience and no skill? The skill is influence on a superpower. So this FD-1023 doesn't mean anything to us unless you're an FBI agent. What does it mean? Well, what happens is when you come in and you have some serious charges, they come in, they swear you in, and they say, tell me your story. And the story is so serious, they kept it. But the person or the source, the human source, it's called the confidential human source, CHS. The confidential human source must have told Republicans, listen, I, I gave this testimony. These Bidens were up to no good, and I got proof of it. Much like uh, Mr. Lutz that we talked to and we heard do a tape last week said, I've dealt with the Bidens. They got all these international deals going. When I told the FBI that I want to come forward, this guy shouldn't be elected, shouldn't be nominated. Next thing you know, I'm labeled as an international arms dealer and an illegal foreign agent. And he had to cut this tape to explain his story because he thinks he's going to get arrested. He can't go back to the country. Yet he shares a think tank with James Woolsey, a former CIA director. So how bad can he be? Shannon Bream joins us now. So, Shannon, I watched on a special report bring this story forward about the 1023 form. 
highlighting conversations between uh, a confidential human source, a CHS, and a Burisma CFO and CEO. Grassley put it forward. In layman's terms, I know you got this deep legal background. How significant does this seem? Significant only because the FBI has identified this source who is the source of this particular document as somebody they found reliable in the past that they have worked with through numerous presidential administrations. So they clearly gave it some weight. I mean, this is something that I asked Bill Barr, former general um, attorney general, about this uh, a few weeks ago on Fox News Sunday. And I said, what is the deal with this document? Because Democrats are out there saying there was nothing to it. It, it kind of went nowhere. He said, that's not true. He said, I, it went through the Pittsburgh office. They vetted it. They actually found some additional information. It was worked up and then sent to places where there would be an open investigation that may be relevant, including in Delaware, where the Hunter Biden investigation was going on. So then the question is, did it kind of die there or was it picked up and investigated? Maybe there was found that there was nothing to it. But the trail kind of goes cold at that point. We don't know. And really, U.S. Attorney David Weiss is one of the only people who could answer that question. So this is separate. Uh, well, I mean, this would help an investigation to find out what Hunter Biden is paying taxes on, obviously. Uh, and mm-hmm. is he is he acting uh, uh, illegally as a foreign business, uh, uh, doing foreign business as an agent, like they said that we heard that Paul Manafort was doing, didn't register. I mean, that is one thing. So the CHS suggested this uh, this confidential human source, as you said, with credibility, uh, that it would be best if Burisma simply litigate. This is, this is an exchange I thought was so significant. Uh, someone would recommend that the CHS, it would, the CHS suggested to the Burisma executive, the CFO, said, listen, you're worried about being investigated by this guy, Shoykin. Yeah. He said, well, why don't you just get a lawyer and fight it? And they say, what wouldn't it be best if Burisma simply litigated the matter in Ukraine and pay someone $50,000? And the CFO laughed. It laughed at the number five and said it costs $5 million for one Biden and $5 million for another Biden. And that would be how they defend themselves. And the next thing you know, Shoykin gets fired. And the president bragged about firing this guy. I said, Shoygu, mm-hmm. as everybody wanted him out. That's why I fired him. Well, it's kind of weird to walk over with a billion dollars of taxpayer dollars and use it as if it's your own as leverage to get a country to do something uh, as if you were a real estate agent. So what about that exchange? How significant well, if it's proven true? Yeah, and the fact is, I mean, all of these things could be completely legal. They could be completely shady. But when the president – he wasn't president at the time – but this is between his vice presidency and presidency. When he's out there telling these stories, it gets a laugh. You know, he knows the punchline. They're saying, like, I told him you're not getting the money and, you know, bleepity bleep or, or, you know, you fire that guy or I shut this down. That taken in context with these allegations, which were made in 2020, leave a lot of questions and optics that are not good for the Biden administration that they have to answer because the whole allegation by this whistleblower or not whistleblower, confidential human stores. Not verified, but the whole claim he's making is that, you know, this conversation, listen, we had Hunter on the board because we knew his dad could help us with problems or he could potentially run an interference for us while we're trying to do business in the U.S. So all of that together with the public comments that the president made before he became president, I mean, he's got some questions to answer. So RFK Jr. was uh, at a hearing yesterday for censorship and he was cut off and treated so harshly. That I, I couldn't believe what I was watching, especially it's the Kennedys. He looks a lot like Bobby Kennedy, his dad. Uh, he was tight with Ted Kennedy. 
an esteemed senator, and yet he was in front of Democrats who wanted to bring him behind closed doors, were embarrassed by him and personally insulted him, and was calling him a a sexist, anti-Semitic, and a racist. Here's Robert F. Kennedy trying to defend himself and talking about this on the story yesterday, Cut 22. I want to say something because they, you know, the, the charges that I made these statements that were anti-Semitic, all of those statements are taken out of context. And those statements themselves, I, I have literally, and I said this under oath today, I've never made a single anti-Semitic statement in my life or racist statement in my life. And uh, the statements that are being twisted and distorted to make them seem like I said these um, these controversial things are is, is simply another way um, that the you know that I'm be, that that the, the, the DNC etc. and its allies are using to uh, to silence me to marginalize me to make me look crazy. So I mean, you've seen a lot, and mm-hmm. you know who these guys are, and you know that he has a. He said vaccines should get the same coverage and scrutiny as any type of pharmaceutical drug. Why don't they? Why are we taking all these vaccines now? You know, he vaccinates his kids. He says he gets a flu shot, but he doesn't like the way and believes it in many ways. He wrote a book about it and was a bestseller for a long time that we're getting all these uh, all these vaccines. So he's a crackpot. He shouldn't be hurt. He should be taken down. He should be shadow banned or banned entirely. That was the whole point of the hearing. How do you make sense of this, Shannon? Yeah, and that's what Republicans were saying. We don't agree with all the stuff he says either, but we agree as Americans with his ability to say it. Now, Democrats did not want to hear from him at all. Um, They didn't think he should be a witness at all. It is a weird juxtaposition to have this, you know, Democratic dynasty family member with the last name Kennedy being, you know, hit at by the Democrats, being lauded by the Republicans. Again, who say, we don't agree with the content of a lot of what he says, but just the ability to say it is one thing. Democrats had been saying, you know, this is overblown. There isn't this, you know, tech and social media censorship. Well, you know, Thomas Massey, Republican congressman, comes out and says, you guys are trying to censor this guy who's standing here trying to tell us a story about censorship and hearing about censorship that you guys say isn't happening. So, gosh, I mean, it it was um, a very heated on all sides kind of hearing. I don't know that it solved anything, but it exposed where some of the fault lines are for people when it comes to unpopular ideas. As we always say, the First Amendment isn't there to protect ideas that we all like and feel good about and agree on. It's a unique American creation and that we protect offensive speech so that everybody has the room to say what they want to say. So for President Trump, we know that he thinks he says he's got a target letter on Sunday. Who gets a target letter on Sunday? So I never heard of this. And now uh, we wait to find out if he is, in fact, going to be indicted for a third time. But on this second indictment is the Mar-a-Lago documents. And there was a hearing in front of Aileen Cannon a, a Trump-appointed judge, and uh, and it looks like Jack Smith wants an immediate. He said, let's just get mm-hmm. this trial going by December. And President Trump says, I'm running for president. Make it after 2024. <laughs> now, a judge just ruled the trial will begin next May. So in 2024, but here we'll find out right when the nominations taking place, they'll be in the heat of the primaries, the first primary, mm-hmm. you know, you know, they'll be in the heat of this whole thing and he's going to be on trial. They could land him in prison. Do you believe now, uh, Andy McCarthy was doubtful that it'll get started in May. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, I doubt that as well. You got to remember, of course, this is a federal trial. There will be tons of pretrial motion, strategizing, and all that kind of stuff. There are classified documents involved, so you have a lot to do before you get to trial with vetting those, how the jury's going to handle them, who can see what. 
it's just unique in that way. But any federal trial to get done that quickly, um, I think the May thing is a target. I think that a lot of um, pretrial stuff will happen that will probably push that. I think it's much more likely it comes after the um, election. But now when we wait, you know, for another batch, potentially of federal indictments and charges on the January 6th stuff, I mean, the, the former president's already facing a couple of state trials. Remember, I mean, he's he's got um, the Eugene Carroll thing. He's got the Alvin Bragg thing in Manhattan. That stuff is, you know, in the spring before you even get to the May federal trial. So, you know, we wait on Georgia to find out if that special grand jury dumps something from there um, and if there's another round of federal uh, charges as well. So, I mean, that would be overwhelming for any defendant, any legal team to try to prepare for all those things. But to do it in the, in the middle of a presidential election is literally unheard of. Uh, and we'll never hear from him again, hopefully. So with the Eugene Carroll thing, uh, he doesn't want to pay his five million dollars, but he's not looking at jail for that. And with the right. AG Letitia James saying unfair business practices, whatever she's claiming is pure politics, that's also civil. They're looking to destroy his business. We'll see how successful they are. I don't think he will be. But to a degree, never, you never know. You saw those taxes. And then, you know, how complicated it can be and how people can find things in anything except for Hunter Biden's taxes. He doesn't really pay him, but he's not that interested in doing it. So let's not really look into it. And then you have Georgia. Uh, uh, go find mm-hmm. me votes, and then you were, and then you look at the January sixth that could be happening an indictment there. What do you where do you, where do you stand on January sixth? If that target letter came in, will we see an indictment next week? I mean, it could come any day, literally. You know, Fridays in July in D.C. are, are good days for big things to drop. Um, it could be this weekend. Um, that's why we have a legal panel booked on uh, Fox News Sunday, so I won't be the only attorney on the show. Because um, I have a, thing, a feeling we're going to have some things to break down. You know, remember they had given him, he says, the former president, according to the letter, until yesterday to tell them whether he was going to testify for the grand jury or not. Most people felt like he's not going to do it. But that means if that was kind of the last puzzle piece, they're offering him a chance to come defend himself. And he says, thanks, but no thanks. They may be ready to wrap up. Um, So, I mean, both of the last two indictments have come in sort of a surprisingly swift manner. Um, I would say stand by. But the thing is, Shannon, how can you get a fair trial if you're Donald Trump in Washington? That's going to be very tricky. I mean, the voter makeup here is, you know, most most years the presidential vote here is about 92, 93 percent Democrat and maybe, you know, 5 percent Republican and the rest something else. Um, it is tricky. But, you know, his his I would think one of the pretrial motions, if he does get indicted on charges that has to stand trial here in D.C., one of the things they're going to do is like they've tried to with the Manhattan case is try to move it. They'll try to change venue. And I think that's one of the arguments they'll make. Like, look at the results of the last two elections. Um, this yeah. man is not beloved in D.C. Like you are. <laughs> According to you. Right. Who's on Fox News Sunday? Fan. So Vivek Ramaswamy is going to be with us. We have a brand new exclusive poll Sunday morning from South Carolina and from Iowa, two critical early states. People didn't know who he was, couldn't pronounce his name four or five months ago, and he's just leapfrogged right over big names in the GOP. Um, Will he do it with these new test results, um, new poll results? We will see. We'll talk to him about some controversial things he's had to say about Ukraine and uh, 14th Amendment and some other stuff. Um, We've got our legal panel. We have someone that, that... is the D side of the aisle that we can't announce just yet, but we will have balance on the show. Should be able to put that out shortly. And our political panel, which is always fantastic. Yeah, I regret. I had him last week, and I did. I regret not asking about the Ukraine situation because his, it's ridiculous, his idea. Uh, they can keep well, he, 20% he, he of Ukraine if you – Yeah. Yeah, you can keep 20% of Ukraine if you promise to break up with China. 
Uh, that's just yeah. that just that's beneath him because he's so smart, and he's been Very dynamic on the stump, and he's a great steward. Regardless, he has benefited the most. He he can go anywhere at any time. Even handle Shannon Bream in a bad mood on a Sunday. Not that you're ever in a bad Which mood, I but if you are, to be. Can, I'm going to get fired up. I'm going to promise to do that. Maybe some push-ups. But what are you watching you know, first? What are you watching first before your show? I'm going to be watching Brian Kilmeade on Saturday night, like I always do as my indispensable show prep. Thank you so much, Shannon Bream. See you there. All right. Back in a moment. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, it's unfortunate. It's definitely a hinge point, a turning point. Um, you know, the, the, the future is different than it's ever been. Um, is talking about streaming and, and, and uh, residuals and then AI is a completely new frontier that I think everyone's trying to measure about what it really is. So uh, let's see. Everyone's on pause. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt a lot of people, but hopefully it'll be a short-term pain for long-term improvement. That is Matthew McConaughey just talking about the strike. That not only the actor strike, but that's still in existence. The writer's strike has destroyed all, and I don't, you know, I don't care. The late-night shows, nobody's working. Uh, but I care about the staffers. I care about the cameramen and women. I care about the directors, the ones that, you know, I'm not saying paycheck to paycheck, but you do count on an income. I care about uh, the movies. And even though Matthew McConaughey will, will have has generational wealth, I imagine, almost everybody else in the industry doesn't. They live for the next job, the next movie, the next production. But they're trying to rejigger the construction of it because Netflix, Hulu, everything's streaming, which means you have no back end and all these actors and others get money on the profits they make. When you have subscriptions, it's the numbers, the number. So a lot of these contracts are null and void. See if they can work it out. Hopefully they realize the pandemic. We got used to life without movie theaters. And so far the theaters have not come back. This could be their death now. Like the big trolla when it comes to music. that makes you think this is the brian kilmeade show and they're going to have to admit that they went to a central district of california to request a, a approval there so as u.s attorney weiss's stories have changed in his uh ongoing letters um you know he's going to say well i asked him to partner but when the the key uh, uh point from doj is is how you can trust the american people to trust this investigation is that it's being run by a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, and you 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 go to a President Biden-appointed U.S. attorney once, not once, but twice. I mean, it's just on its face, it's just a clear misrepresentation of, of the level of authority that he has. So that was Gary Shapley on with uh, Megyn Kelly with Joseph Ziegler on the Megyn Kelly podcast, fresh off their testimony the day before. I know Ziegler's going to be on special report tonight to move forward on the investigation, which was a sham. Kennedy, what do you think emerged from, I thought was one of the most explosive, riveting conferences I've seen in quite some time with two very credible witnesses? They were credible, and I was surprised that um, Democrats retreated to, you know, the typical tribalism and entrenchment where it's just like, well, 
what you are saying hurts my guy. Therefore, what you are saying is false. And you are politically motivated instead of just asking some questions because maybe we don't want a justice system where the IRS or the FBI could be weaponized against someone or could be weaponized to shield someone uh, to protect their father politically. So you have the investigation, which went for five years. Sooner, sooner or later, David Weiss has got to go in front of uh, go in front of this committee. And he's got to go say yes or no. Were you free to do whatever you wanted? And then if they're not going to be together, this is playback to soundbite. Is he lying? Is he lying when you said you were in a meeting and you said that I don't have control here? Is he lying when they said that you tried to go to Los Angeles, you tried to go to D.C., and you rejected twice? Is he lying? Because he lied under oath. Maybe we should prosecute him then. Unless, of course, you're lying under oath. Then then where are we going with this? Both people can't be telling the truth here. And, you know, and if you've got one person, Gary Shapley, saying that David Weiss sought special counsel status and he also wanted jurisdiction in California and D.C., but was denied that. Why is he saying that? Does he have proof of that? Does he have emails? He's already got whistleblower status. So release those emails, release some proof so people can stop attacking him on that, saying that he's making it up. It it doesn't seem He's got enough evidence right now that's pretty damning. It doesn't seem like he really needs to make something up in order to nail the the coffin shut. So, Kennedy, the other thing is that I don't think there's any way President Biden could actually get in front of an audience and say it's time for the rich to pay their fair share. They only pay 8%. You know these numbers are adding up to something like $17 million. He said, where's the money, as he left the stage about a month ago haphazardly. If that if all this money, where is the money? That's a great question. Bottom line is you pay no taxes on seventeen million. Yeah, just because you and it's going to go it up from there doesn't mean that there hasn't been any malfeasance. It just means that you've been doing this for so long. This is how the operation was set up to enrich yourselves, and it's very interesting because now there is so much of a spotlight on this family because Joe Biden is president. That they they cannot engage in these schemes. It was a lot easier when he was vice president because people weren't really paying attention. They were raising some red flags about Hunter, but you still had Uncle Jim and obviously other family members who you know didn't have a particular trade. Uh, they they didn't have a product. They didn't have an area of expertise. None of that to sell. All they had was proximity to power. But that was very, very lucrative. But that the the spigot seems to be shut off because there is so much focus on the president. With the news cycle, it's easy to get caught up in this. But remember, it was a few weeks ago when they said we need to see this ten twenty three. You had this credible witness come forward and talk about Hunter Biden's illegal business dealings with Ukraine specifically, and under oath tell the FBI we like to see it. And the FBI says we don't have it. I don't know what you're talking about. Then finally they go, we have it. You can't see it. They go, it's not classified. Let me see it. Well, we're going to have to redact it. It's going to take some time. Finally, they get it. And Grassley released it yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it came out, and this credible human source, credible because he's worked with them before, basically says that Hunter Biden was hired to protect them against a would-be prosecution that would stop Burisma from going public and other things. but And it was even brought up in the dialogue that you could pay 50000 and get a good lawyer to defend yourself. And he yeah. says, no, I have to give $5 million to Joe and $5 million to Hunter, known as the big guy, Joe. So they both get $5 million and this prosecutor gets fired. 
the prosecutor gets fired and they say, well, when you say the pre- Joe Biden was there on camera bragging that he fired this guy, he said, well, because he was corrupt and everybody wanted to get rid of him. And that's the story they're going with. So here we go. The question is, does the confidential human source need to come out for this story to move? I mean, at, at this point, even if that confidential source came out, Democrats would still find a way to vilify this person. But it, it, it feels like if you're looking at the evidence, the walls are closing in. At some point, you you can't just keep denying. You have to acknowledge what is happening and what has happened. And, you know, you also have to look at the threshold you created for impeachment. And if not impeachment, then punishment. And if you are creating the rules, you have to play by them. I would think so. Uh, an impeachment is was so tedious uh, to go through that again. Um, I don't think but, anyone wants to go through that again. No, but and, also, I hope people are paying attention so we don't keep electing politicians like this. And sometimes experience and being so entrenched in Washington for decades and decades and decades is actually an incubator for corruption and corrupt activities. It, it is not a net positive just because you've been there so long. You've figured out every way to game the system because you are creating the loopholes that you and your family jump through. And, and just so you know, for, for people out there, this is what this uh, confidential human source uh, says. The FBI began receiving information on the Biden and Burisma back in 2017. The FBI long knew that Joe's association uh, called associates called him the big guy. The FBI received a lead involving cryptocurrency. That struck me. I said, wait, we're saying cryptocurrency. What does that have to do? Is that how they was going to get paid? I mean, back then, yes, it was not traceable. Um, it was gaining in value. And, you know, for a lot of people who don't want to trade in fiat currency, who want to be paid in something uh, that cannot be tracked and taxed. Yeah, crypto is a very attractive the CFO product. bragged he had covered his tracks on the Biden payments. Maybe that's how. And the confidential human source believed the payments made to the Bidens were illicit in nature. So he knew what he was up to. He knew what he was paying off. And this is what turns off so many Republicans who say, Ukraine war? Really? The people that impeach my guy, for many people, Trump, that got in so much trouble, that weren't candid enough to admit uh, they were corrupt enough to have all these backdoor ways of payments. Rudy Giuliani pursues it on the behest of Donald Trump. It ends up resulting in his first impeachment. They don't fundamentally want to support uh, a country like this, even though they can't see past it, in my view, to see why I think it's necessary to do everything for Ukraine to be successful. But when people see Ukraine, their eyes roll in their heads. And they, now they're seeing again more of what happened in the past in 2017 in 2018. And at the base of this is the exchange among Obama officials saying how bad it looks that the guy holding the portfolio for Ukraine has a son on Burisma with no qualifications. But Bo just died. We don't want to be a, a burden to him. He's mourning. Leave him there. Little did we know how he was handling his grieving. I think that, um, unfortunately, and this may sound very cynical, uh, he has used family tragedy to his benefit in the past. All the time. Yeah. How many times are you going to hear that speech? And by the way, the trucker that 
it was noon and it was a, tr- a car accident. The trucker hit him. He goes, he decided to drink his lunch. You ever hear this? He tells the story as if the, he goes, he tried to have a liquid, he decided to have a liquid lunch. The guy's family say, enough. He didn't have a liquid lunch. He wasn't drinking. It was a tragic accident that killed his first wife and child. But you can't accuse someone of drunk driving when it didn't happen. How much does this guy make up in his life? Yeah, well, and he's he's operating now as though the media landscape is the same as it was in 1976. And it's not. It's It's a vastly different time. And we can find information. <laughs> you know, it's like... We have this thing called the Internet where every document that was ever created is stored. And you can go back and you can find primary sources. You can find human sources. You can find records. You can find all sorts of information. So saying things and denying them used to equate to reality in the 70s. It's, that's not the case anymore, but that's still how they're playing. And because of the Internet, uh, your denials that you were on MTV have fallen f- flat. I, because I don't I've even got know on the what internet. those three letters mean. Well, I went on, I went on the internets. Malleable and, Tokyo Virgins. Exactly. Uh, and I looked that up using the, the regular term, that term, mm-hmm. not MTV, mm-hmm. the abbreviation. Mm-hmm. And I found tapes of people that look exactly like you. Well, that's, that's a coincidence. And they're probably deep fakes. More on that in a moment. The fastest growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. And let me play among the stars. That is Tony Bennett. And Tony Bennett, sadly, has been suffering from Alzheimer's since 2016 and passed away uh, today. And this is one of these guys who every performance was his, as if it's his first performance. Just loved it his entire life. I just know that I haven't heard anything negative about it. A previous generation just worshipped him. He had so many great crooners. Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, mutual respect. Um, it's a sad day, but when someone has Alzheimer's, I almost feel relieved for them because also for the family because you see a person there that's not there anymore. You know what's heartbreaking for me is, I mean, not only losing someone like that who is an absolute icon and legend. I met him a couple times, and he was absolutely lovely to every person he spoke to. Didn't matter if it was a PA or an assistant or a security guard. He was so kind and decent and would draw portraits of people, and he was absolutely lovely. The thing that makes me so sad is I feel like we're so close to a few different Alzheimer's breakthroughs. And, you know, some of these uh, cognitive decline conditions like dementia, and you could even throw Parkinson's in there. We're so close. And it's heartbreaking for a family to lose someone knowing that we were on the precipice of maybe not a cure, but for treatments that could help people stave off the effects of the disease for years. And, you know, even if they just stabilize for a while, 
not being robbed of so much so cruelly mm-hmm. as Alzheimer's does. That's why the biotech industry, as it was explained to me, is so great in that it's got the mix of saving lives, revolutionary health care, and entrepreneurship. So you see the breakthrough. You provide the financing. You let the scientists get the support. You save people's lives, whether it's the next uh, innovation when it comes to heart, circulation, major diseases, whatever it is, polio on down, and then you bring it to market. And those people become extremely wealthy. To me, there's an incentive there to have this breakthrough. That's what that's what I don't want to lose in this country. Yes, and and the more socialized medicine you have, there is a direct cost in innovation. You pay with innovation, and that is the last place that we should be trimming anything or sacrificing anything because it really is the innovation, the thinkers, um, the the non-traditional researchers who find different ways of solving problems, but you can't do that in a top-down economic and political environment. So it brings me to the movie I saw, Oppenheimer. Oh, how was it? It was awesome. Yeah. But what they use as a model is still used today as a model, the Manhattan Project. Yes. So, you know, we need an answer to something. We need a Manhattan Project-type approach where they literally built a town Built a village, brought their families, all the scientists came together, and they raced for one objective, beat Hitler to the bomb. Mm-hmm. And they did uh, because they had this collective mindset and this big push. And everyone to this day, every time you want something done, the Manhattan Project. So I'm just wondering, because we hear that with cancer. A couple of years ago, they're like, we are so close to curing cancer, you know, and we do better all the time. But we never quite get there. Yes. We never quite get there with Alzheimer's. I mean, one day, wouldn't it be great? They're talking about a preventative shot and things to that nature. But the other thing is, when Ronald Reagan had it, you almost have a separation because your body almost betrays you. He so was so healthy, except for his mind, his body wouldn't betray him. Yes. His body kept him for 15 years past to probably where we know who he was. And, and that's what um, a couple of years ago Tony Bennett's doctor said, uh, acknowledging that he had Alzheimer's, but... The fact that he was constantly moving, constantly singing and making music and constantly painting and using different parts of his brain and body uh, to keep functioning. And 96 is a pretty phenomenal age. Did you ever, the other thing on a side note, so many people paint. I'm listening to Howard Stern talk about painting. George W. Bush paints. Are you ever going to paint? No, I'm actually not a good painter. My mom is an artist. My mom is a fine artist, and she's an abstract painter. And I grew up with that. I don't have a brain for painting and drawing. I do calligraphy. Really? What's that? It's like, you know, beautiful uh, writing. It's like when when you you see something and the letters are big and beautiful and, you know, that, Celtic. But and, will you do that to spell something out? I usually already have the spelling for the word that I'm writing in calligraphy. Okay, so that that helps a lot. Like good spelling <laughs> helps in calligraphy. Like no vowels. It's Damn really it. hard to cross something out <laughs> right. and and try and pass it off as a piece of art. So will you do this like uh, commercially? No, I did in high school. I did sell some of my calligraphy in high school, and yeah. I have addressed a lot of people's wedding invitations. Wow, and what is in because uh, not being an artist, like what's enjoyable about that? Uh, it's very soothing. It takes a long time. And, you know, you just have to be very, very precise and you have to be patient. And um, it, it's it, it's more 
precision than flourish. I wish I had one of those qualities. You have so many. You're probably painting. You're always kicking a soccer ball. Do I have any of those qualities? Very surprising. Right. Do I have any of those uh, patient and precise? Have you guys? Patient. (laughs) You're a patient person, obviously. Mm. I mean, there has to be precision in what you do. Uh, Someone the other day was like, I think I'm the hardest working person in the building. And someone else said, Kill me by far. And they're like, Oh, yeah, I forgot. With no precision. (laughs) (laughs) He's so imprecise. He can do anything. Right. I do show up on time. That's it. But listen, we just found out something about you calligraphy. Right. I will address anyone's wedding invitations. You just hit me up. For the right price. A lot of money. A lot of money. <laughs> uh, Kenny, when do we? how do we get your podcast? Uh, Spotify, Apple, foxnewspodcast.com. What do you call it? Kennedy Saves the World. And, oh, okay, don't forget to watch One Nation Saturday at 8. I'm going to. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.